Uh, well, good morning. It is uh, great to be with you here this morning. We just got back from this past weekend, Memorial Day. We had our annual young adult trip. It was a really rough trip. We were down to 30A. This is a picture of us at the beach. Uh, the weather was perfect. A couple of the young adults are missing there. Uh, one of the most beautiful things on this trip is to see the unexpected togetherness. My children playing with the young adults, them loving on my kids. It's fantastic. One of the best parts of the trip, though, was when this four-foot, five-foot shark came to shore. Of course, my kids are just ecstatic and jumping with joy. So they're running up and down the beach yelling, shark. And uh, there's a few feared faces in the crowd, but nothing says good ministry like yelling shark to a bunch of beachgoers. It was it was fantastic. Uh, turn with me, if you will, into your Bibles. Uh, we're in Isaiah chapter 1. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's going to be page 1059, 1059. And while you're turning there, I just want to give a recap of where we're at in our Quest Bible study journey this year. We all the way back in January started about talking about the promise that was given to Abraham. And Abraham leaves everything he knows to be a blessing. And we jumped to freedom, which was Moses taking his people out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's grasp. And we have just been marching along all along the way talking about the kingdom, Israel's kingdom and uh, the division that has taken place. And today we are going to land on the idea, the conversation of exile in Isaiah. And if you were listening to the podcast this week of Second Kings, uh, yours truly was doing the reading for that, and I apologize. Uh, there were about a hundred names. I couldn't pronounce half of them. I said that to Rich, and he started laughing at me when I told him that. And then the following week, when it was his turn to do the podcast, he had to have a root canal that day. So I think it balanced out in the end for me there. So we're going to jump today to the book of Isaiah, and I want to have a conversation with you around three particular things. Rebellion, essentially our rejection of God, repentance, and restoration. Rebellion, repentance, and restoration. So we jump into Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. It begins with this. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I've reared children up and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own manger, but Israel does not know my people, do not understand. That word rebellion in the Hebrew is the word to break away from, to act like a criminal, to, to be disloyal to. The, the chapter 1 of Isaiah sets the tone for the book of Isaiah and the state of Israel. A people in rebellion against God. The very same people that have come out of the desert, out with Moses. They've been in and out of covenant relationship with Yahweh. And they're at this place in their journey where they have rebelled. They have rejected the ways of God. And if we were to read a little bit further in Isaiah chapter 1, we would hear words from God such as, These people are corrupt. They're full and filled with guilt. They have turned their backs on me and my ways. This is the state of Israel in which we find them in Isaiah chapter 1. And it makes you wonder, what has happened to these people? God has done some powerful things in their lives. How have they gotten to this place? But if we were to pause for a moment, take a look at our own lives, we may recognize that we are very similar to Israel in a lot of ways. Granted, there are people in this world that outright reject God. They rebel against God. They want nothing to do with God. But for the vast majority of us who claim the name of Christ, I would say that we recognize that we fall into similar patterns. 
and that we don't outright rebel against God, but the genesis of our, our rebellion starts with the day in and day out decisions we make each and every day, the very small decisions we make each and every day. And I would argue that our rebellion, that it doesn't happen overnight. See, we make and gravitate toward decisions that either move us closer to God or move us further away. In one instance, we either look like the world in our small decisions or we look more like the ways of God. This is why Paul, in the eighth chapter of Corinthians, says to the church, he says, you need to stop eating food sacrificed to idols. It's a really small, minor decision, but at the end of the day, he's telling them, hey, there's new believers amongst you. They're just coming out of idol worship. They've sacrificed food to idols their whole lives, and I don't want them to fall back into that pattern in that little decision of eating food sacrificed to idols. So what do we find in our text that would help us understand what contributes to our rebellion of God beyond our daily decisions? Look with me back at verse 3. It says, The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel, Israel does not know. My people, they don't understand. Isaiah seems to be pointing to the fact that the ox knows its master, its owner. The donkey knows the safety of the manger. Essentially, they know the one who is leading them, the one who is guiding them. They're valued by the owner, and they understand and understand his leading in their lives. It would seem that our rebellion, our rejection of God, has something to do with knowing and understanding him. Because if we don't know God, how on earth do we follow in his ways? How can we possibly follow him? If we're not following him, we will inevitably follow the ways of the world. That's just how we are wired. So what does it look like to know and understand him? Let me give you an example from my own life. And I just want to be honest with you. And some of you may judge me, but I'm not a dog person. It's just not innate in me. Uh, we own a dog. This is our dog. His name's Benny. Uh, and he sleeps like this. If you were to watch my dog, that tongue is hanging out sideways two miles long. Um, that's just how he is. But when we got Benny, the first few times we took him on a walk, it was awful. And, and, it, and I didn't like working with the dog. It was hard to work with the dog. And before you judge me about how I am with dogs, let me just give you a background on my history with dogs. When I was 10 years old, I'm walking down the street, and by the time I turn around and look behind me, there are two Doberman Pinschers running at full speed at me. So I go sprinting. I run into a bush. The owner comes over. She was slightly drunk and says to me, you shouldn't have run from the dog. <laughs> to which I said, next time I'll be sure to pet him. Unbelievable. Fast forward some time later, and I'm at my own house petting my very own dog. The dog jumps up, starts growling at me, and tries to bite me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. I don't know. And one time later, this is no joke, I'm, I'm a little bit older, and I'm running up a street with a friend of mine. Out comes, out of nowhere, a massive German shepherd. Don't judge me. Add a little grace. I've had a rough history with dogs. But as I've walked Benny and as I've journeyed with him, it's taken a while for him to get to use to me on, on how to direct him. And as we would go on his walks, the first thing I realized with Benny was that he didn't respond to being on a collar. I could yank, I could pull, I could guide. He wasn't going in any direction I wanted him to. It wasn't until I put him on the harness that he responded perfectly to that. You see, what I didn't know about Benny was that his owners trained him on a harness. I came to know and understand my dog. 
He came to know and understand the ways I wanted him to act. The real turning point for me was when I took him to the vet. Vet comes out, it's time for his shots, and what does the dog do? He, he buries himself right in my lap out of fear. It's like the first moment I felt like I became his owner. He knew he trusted me, you know, I cared for him, and he just wanted to stay with me. Just like the ox knows its master, the safety of the manger for the donkey, my dog knew and understand me, and he, and he felt that safety with me. Why do I tell you that story? Because I've come to know and understand my dog. The dog has come to know and understand me and my family. The same is true with God. The more we spend time with him, the more we walk with him, the more we experience him, the more we understand how God works, the more we can trust him in our daily lives, the more we follow in his ways rather than in the ways of rebellion. And the beauty of it all is we have a God that doesn't need to get to know us, doesn't need to get to understand us. He knows our ways. He knows our tendencies. He knows us intimately. It's the beauty of it all. So if we recognize we might be in this place of rebellion, what are, where do we go from there? We move toward repentance. We move toward repentance. So how do you actually do that? Meaning, how do you change course? How do you change and reorient your reality around God's reality? Jump with me, if you will, back to Isaiah to verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. He begins by telling his readers to wash and to clean. And this word wash in the Hebrew is the word rahatz. Can you say that with me? Rahatz. It's pretty good. Add a little more H to that and you're good. And, he's, and it's the same word used in Matthew 27 when Pilate comes before the crowd and he physically washes his hands in front of the crowd saying he has nothing to do with the decision made to crucify Jesus. It's a physical washing. It's the same word used in Ruth chapter 3 when Ruth tells Naomi, you need to go bathe. You need to wash and put on perfume before you go meet Boaz. In both instances, water is used in the physical sense. However, in Isaiah, he's referring to a spiritual washing, a spiritual cleansing. He's saying to us, he's saying to the, them, to wash yourselves and make yourselves spiritually clean. So how do you wash yourself and make yourself spiritually clean? Well, there's an enormous part God plays in that, and there's a part that we play. So what is the part that we play? It's right there in your text. You take your evil deeds out of God's sight. You begin to stop doing what is wrong. You learn to do what is right. You seek justice, defend the oppressed. You take up the cause of the fatherless, and you plead the case of the widow. A widow. Essentially, you repent of your rebellion against helping others or your lack of concern for helping those in need. You begin to make decisions day in and day out that point toward God and his ways. You learn to do what is right for others. The first, fo for, first four focus on what we do personally. We take our evil deeds out of God's sight. We begin to learn to do what is right. We stop doing what is wrong. We seek justice. And the last three is dependent on what we do for others. 
We defend the oppressed, we take up the cause of the fatherless, and we defend the widow. Essentially, those that can't help themselves. Stop doing what is wrong, start caring for those in need, and everything else flows from that. What do I mean by that? Well, if we're doing what is right in our workplace, in society, in our homes, the world is going to look a lot different. It's going to begin looking like the promised kingdom that Isaiah speaks of and that Jesus ultimately brought, one filled with justice and hope and shalom and peace. And if we're doing what is right, we are going to be the first ones to step in to help people. We are going to be the first ones to defend people and stand up for what is right. There's countless ways we can do this individually. And doing what is right is going to look different for each one of us. But notice, if we, if, if, notice with me, if you will, verse 17. It says, learn to do right Learn to do right. Turn to a neighbor and tell them it's a learning process. It's a learning process. And yeah, very good. You guys are still with me. I love this. Good. Let me give you an example of this, how it's a learning process. We had a neighbor. His name was Ralph. Ralph was in his 90s. He dealt with arthritis really badly in his knees. And as we got to know Ralph, we learned about this. And we begin to ask him, Ralph, how can we support you? How can we help you? And he said, honestly, Cody, if you got my mail every day and brought it to the door, door, that would help me. If you literally just took my trash out for me every day, that would help me a lot. We began to learn what to do for him. We learned what was right for him and how we could help him. Ralph went off to be at a home where he's doing really well, called him literally two weeks ago. Ralph, how you doing? How you doing? We miss you. We miss you. We have learned to do what is right. And the beauty of it is my family has got to participate in our time of helping Ralph. There is something about the fact when we help people, it is so refreshing to the soul. When I was uh, back in California doing youth ministry, I would take about 80 students to the Grand Canyon uh, to a place called Supai. It was lush. It was gorgeous. It was uh, tons of waterfalls. But just like Rutledge, you would get super dirty. And at night, you'd hop into the river, the turquoise water, and you would take what's called a power shower. And after you take this power shower, man, you'd get out of that water and you would feel like a million dollars. You would feel like a brand new person. This is what it can feel like when you begin to do what is right and help others. So if we've recognized we might be in this place of rebellion, we've repented or started the process of repentance, What comes next for us? What comes next is restoration. The next section points all toward restoration. Read with me in verse 18 in Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Super comforting words at the end there. This whole section is about restoration. But what is that first word in verse 19? What does it say? If. If. I want you to circle circle that word. I want you to underline that word if. That word if is a powerful word. 
It carries endless possibilities. It causes us to wonder and to speculate. At times, it can cause us to look back on our past. I mean, how many of us have said, if I could only go back, if I just did this, if I only got into the right college, that word if causes us to reflect, it causes us to wonder, it causes us to ponder. However, this particular use of if leaves us in the position of choice and opportunity. And that if is predicated on whether or not you and I are willing and obedient. And if we're willing and obedient and we choose that in the end, the product will be living into this greater wholeness with God, bringing God's kingdom to those in need. We'll have been joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things. I love to fly. If you go up to 20,000 feet, you view the topography of the land. You see the hills, the valleys, the peaks. You see everything. You don't see all the potholes in Atlanta too far down. You see everything else. And if we were to take that same 20,000 foot view level of Isaiah, we would see a book that shows a cycle of rebellion, repentance, and restoration, just like our own lives. We would also see a promised Messiah coming, from the, jump, uh, from the stump of Jesse. We would read of a child born to us who would carry the government on his shoulders, be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. We would read of the Lord exalted, seated on the throne with his robe, filling the temple with glory. We would read of a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, a lamb slant, sent to slaughter. We, in essence, would be reading of the coming Messiah you and I both know as Jesus the Christ. But what we'd also see at 20,000 feet is a promised hope and a kingdom that Jesus eventually brought with him. A kingdom that cares for the oppressed, the fatherless, and the widow. Jesus came to restore humanity and creation to how it is supposed to be. If, if you're willing and obedient, you will live lives of restoration and you will, people that, you will be a people that go out into all the world helping others move from rebellion to repentance to restoration in their own lives. But if you came down a little bit from that 20,000 foot view for a closer look at Isaiah, you would also notice that Israel's story, and by the time you get to Isaiah chapter 39, they're living in exile. They've been banished from the land. They're hopeless. They're broken. And this is where continual rebellion leads. It leads us to live lives in exile, lives filled with strife and envy, lives filled with lack of peace, lack of joy, lack of faith, lack of trust. There are some of us in this room now that are living lives in exile and we don't even realize it. And a great way to know if you're living in exile is to evaluate if your life revolves around yourself and you care little about helping those in need. Another way to know this is if your life just looks like one busy, endless schedule disconnected from God. That's exile, my friends. Exile was always connected to Israel's disobedience. 
Exile is always connected to disobedience. I want to close with this. There are two people that we contrast in the New Testament. The first is Peter. Peter was bold, the first one to get out of the boat. The first one to stand up and say, Jesus, I will follow you to the very end. Peter was also the very only one to disown Jesus and deny him three times, essentially rebel against him. Yet what we find with Peter is he's fully restored a few chapters later because he was willing and obedient to Christ, willing to receive his grace and his forgiveness. And because his life from that moment on was with full obedience to the one who restored him. The other person is Judas, a man who made decisions day in and day out that pointed him further away from God, who sold Jesus out for money, which ultimately led to his fate, permanent exodus. We have a choice to live lives of restoration and into the promises of Isaiah. The question is, will you begin to understand and learn to do what is right? And will you be willing and obedient? Your daily decisions will either point you closer to God or they will point you closer to exile. But the beauty of it is God never gave up on Israel. God never gives up on us. His arms are open wide waiting for our embrace to get to know him and understand him more so that you might live lives of restoration. Join Christ daily in the restoration of all things and help others to do the same. Would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that you are the God of restoration, that you are a God who loves us in our rebellion, that you will help guide us to our repentance, ultimately leading us to lives of restoration and wholeness. So Father, I pray for my brothers and the sister in, in this room that may be living in exile, that desperately need to change course, to begin participating in this idea of the kingdom of God and the great restoration project that you have started on this planet. Lead us all to restoration, God, so we can invite others to do the same. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.